0: Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, December 9th. In today's news, the Supreme Court rejects an attempt by President Trump's allies to overturn Pennsylvania's election results. President-elect Biden selects a housing and agriculture secretary, and the White House proposes dramatically lower unemployment benefits in exchange for $600 stimulus checks. But first, the big idea. The United States surpassed 15 million confirmed cases of the coronavirus on Tuesday. This milestone comes just five days after we reached 14 million. Our country reported 219,282 new cases yesterday as the contagion killed another 2,594 of our fellow Americans. There's a lot of news to cover, including about COVID, but something that happened last night in Boise, Idaho, unsettled me. So I want to start with that. Minutes into a public health district's virtual meeting to vote on a local mask mandate, County Commissioner Diana Lachiondo excused herself after getting a phone call that anti-mask protesters had surrounded her home. She told the group that she had to go because her 12-year-old son was home alone and a large group was banging on the doors. The visibly upset commissioner, who was in tears, then disconnected from the call, leaving her colleagues stunned. A video of the public meeting is on YouTube, and watching it, you just can't help but feel for her. The commissioners soon learned that hundreds of protesters had massed outside the district health office and outside another board member's residence as well, targeting the public officials who were meeting virtually from their homes and private offices as a precaution amid the worsening pandemic. The health order they were considering would have limited gatherings to fewer than 10 people and required face masks be worn in public and private around non-household members when social distancing is impossible. But they abruptly adjourned their meeting after less than 15 minutes because of safety concerns. Katie Shepard reports that these protests were organized by a multi-state network of far-right activists called People's Rights, The group was founded by Eamon Bundy, a vocal anti-masker and anti-government activist who gained national attention in 2016 as part of a long standoff between his movement and federal police at a national wildlife refuge in Oregon. Bundy was arrested in August at the Idaho Capitol after tying himself to a chair and refusing to leave amid an anti-mask protest. A health district employee placed one of the protesters under citizen's arrest for trespassing into the office, and Boise police took custody of that individual who's been booked into the jail. In addition to swarming Lachiondo's home, protesters also showed up at board member Ted Epperly's house. Epperly, who's a practicing physician in Boise, says the crowd outside his home banged garbage cans, they flashed strobe lights through his windows, and they knocked repeatedly on his front door as the virtual meeting unfolded. Idaho has reported more than 111,000 COVID cases and at least 1,055 deaths since February, but those numbers have been rising rapidly in recent weeks. The state yesterday broke its record for seven-day rolling average of new cases. The counties around the state's capital have been hammered especially hard. The Idaho statesman is reporting in today's paper that Boise-area hospitals may be forced to ration care by New Year's Day if cases stay on their current trajectory. Even as local officials and the governor have tried to implement common sense restrictions to save lives, the Republican Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeechan has fought those limits tooth and nail. She posted a video in October where she described any COVID restrictions as usurpations of life and liberty while holding a gun in one hand and a Bible in the other. Luckily, Lotriando tweeted that she and her son are safe and their home is now being guarded by Boise police. But no child should be frightened by a mob of protesters like this. No local official should fear violence for their public service. We're better than that. Meanwhile, down in Florida, a Republican official resigned yesterday from a state judicial panel in protest after officers of the state, with their guns drawn, raided the home of Rebecca Jones the day before. She's the data scientist who was ousted from the state health department after going public with evidence that the Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, was manipulating data and juking their stats to make the coronavirus look less dangerous and widespread than it was. Ron Philipkowski, who served on a nominating commission for the state's 12th circuit, said he gave up his post to draw attention to the way DeSantis has mishandled the contagion. Up in Delaware, President-elect Biden outlined a plan yesterday to combat the pandemic during his first 100 days. He pledged to sign an executive order within hours of being sworn in on January 20th to require Americans to wear masks when they're on buses and trains crossing state lines, as well as in federal buildings. He announced that he will insist that educators get the shots of the vaccine as soon as possible after they're first given to healthcare workers and people who live and work in long-term care facilities. And Biden called on Congress to devote the funding needed to make it safe for students and teachers to get back into the classroom as soon as possible. As Biden spoke, President Trump held what was billed as a vaccine summit at the White House. The nation's top infectious disease expert, Tony Fauci, was a no-show at Trump's event. Instead, he sent pre-taped videos to both the Biden and the Trump events, and executives from Moderna and Pfizer declined invitations to appear at the White House with the president. After Trump foolishly turned down the chance to secure more Pfizer vaccines this summer, other countries jumped at the chance to buy up the supply that could have been ours, including Israel, the European Union, and Japan. In fact, Brussels and Tokyo staked claims to even larger portions of Pfizer doses than Washington did. Now, Americans will have to wait, as those countries receive shares of their initial orders while supplies here Remain limited. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one The Supreme Court last night denied a last minute attempt by Trump's allies to overturn the results in Pennsylvania, another blow to the president's continuing efforts to reverse his loss. The court's brief order denying a requested injunction provided no reasoning, nor did it note any dissenting votes. It was the first request to delay or overturn the results of last month's election to reach the high court, and it appears that Justice Amy Coney Barrett, Trump's latest nominee, took part. The Pennsylvania petition was always considered a long shot. It literally asked the court to wade into a dispute over state law decided by a state Supreme Court to invalidate every single mail-in ballot that had been cast. But our Supreme Court reporter Bob Barnes notes that the justice's curt dismissal does not bode well for other requests that are in the pipeline, which involve overturning election results. Meanwhile, though, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, a Republican, filed a brash and sweeping complaint yesterday that asked the Supreme Court to overturn Biden's wins in the states of Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Georgia. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel, a Democrat, called it a publicity stunt, not a serious legal pleading, but the Supreme Court has told those four states to respond by Thursday afternoon. The Electoral College is scheduled to meet in less than a week. Number two. Last night, Biden selected Congresswoman Marcia Fudge, a Democrat from Ohio, as his secretary of housing and urban development, and he officially announced his selection of Lloyd Austin to be secretary of defense. Both are African-American. Biden plans to name former Iowa Governor Tom Vilsack as agriculture secretary, returning him to a job he held for all eight years of the Obama administration. Vilsack's planned nomination followed vigorous efforts by African-American groups to derail the former Iowa governor. Some civil rights leaders had pushed Fudge for that job in hopes that she would transform the USDA into an agency more focused on alleviating urban hunger. Others opposed Vilsack because they said he had been insensitive to a black employee during his earlier tenure as ag secretary. Annie Linsky reports that the three cabinet rollouts appear to have been choreographed to blunt criticism from the black community of Vilsack and to give Biden breathing room to be able to appoint a white attorney general. The announcement of Fudge came just as Biden was set to meet with leaders from seven civil rights organizations who've been pushing him to hire more senior black officials. The next HUD secretary will be under a lot of pressure to reverse dozens of policies that Trump HUD secretary Ben Carson has put in place, which eviscerated Obama-era fair housing protections and enforcement, protections for transgender homeless people, and legal standards meant to keep lenders, landlords, and insurers from discriminating against tenants. Number three. Last night, the Trump administration proposed an economic relief package that would offer far skimpier federal unemployment benefits than what has been proposed by that bipartisan group of lawmakers who've been meeting for the last week. This adds an element of uncertainty into the already fragile negotiations. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin has proposed that lawmakers approve another round of stimulus checks worth $600 per person and $600 per child. Jeff Stein and Mike DeBonis report from the Capitol that this new proposal is a non starter for Democrats. Under the bipartisan framework that they've gotten behind, released last week by moderates, Congress would approve about $180 billion in new federal unemployment benefits for tens of millions of jobless Americans. That would be enough to fund federal supplemental unemployment benefits at $300 a week while extending various unemployment programs that are otherwise set to expire at the end of this month. By contrast, the Mnuchin plan, released last night, provides only $40 billion in new funding for federal unemployment benefits. Senate negotiators are also trying to reach a deal on whether companies can be sued over outbreaks. Democrats have refused to agree to such language, saying it would imperil workers' rights, but both sides are now attempting to reach some kind of compromise on a liability shield. Mnuchin says the White House will demand, as a condition for any deal, quote, robust liability protections for businesses, schools, and universities. Over on the House side of the Capitol, last night that chamber passed the bipartisan $741 billion defense authorization bill by a sizable veto-proof majority, throwing down the first of two expected gauntlets before Trump, who escalated his threats to veto earlier in the day, will get a chance to scuttle the legislation. The 335 to 78 vote represents a much bigger margin of victory for the bill than the House mustered for an earlier version this summer, it's also a sharp rebuke to Trump's exhortations to Republicans that they should vote against the measure unless it protects Confederate base names and punishes technology companies that the president is mad at. Among other things, though, this bill funds the salaries for our troops. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, December 9th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.